Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. The closing years of the French monarchy could scarcely have found a more faithful chronicler or one better fitted for the task, both by training and situation, than Madame Campan. Introduced into the court of Louis XV as a young girl, she became one of the household of Marie Antoinette immediately after that princess came from Austria to wed the Dauphin, the king's heir, and followed the fortunes of her royal mistress with unswerving devotion until the prison gates separated them. But it is not through loyalty alone that Madame Campan deserves recognition as a biographer and historian. Her education and endowments, which rendered her remarkable even at a tender age, ripened with the special opportunities and experience. Jeanne-Louise Henriette Genet was born in Paris October 6, 1752. Her home was one of quiet refinement in which her talents found full development. She made rapid progress in music and languages and was equally proficient in English. Tasso, Milton, Dante, and Shakespeare were read in the original. She was also apt in elocution, reciting passages in Racine and Moliere to delighted audiences. Such a prodigy was soon spoken of at court, and she presently obtained a place as reader to the princesses, or mesdames, the four daughters of Louis XV. I was then fifteen, she says. My father felt some regret at yielding me up at so early an age to the jealousies of the court. When Marie Antoinette, the Archduchess of Austria, was married to the Dauphin, afterwards Louis XVI, Mademoiselle Genet became the wife of Campan, son of the Queen's secretary. The king himself gave her a dowry, and she became reader and companion to the Dauphiness. Thenceforth, a close, sincere attachment was maintained between the two, which was to bear fruit in the volume of memoirs written by Madame Campan in her old age. After the stormy events leading to the death of Louis XVI and his queen, Madame Campan fled from Paris, carrying valuable state papers on behalf of her mistress, and during the reign of terror remained concealed at Combertin. After the fall of Robespierre, she opened a female boarding school at Saint-Germain, where, among other pupils, she received Hortense, the daughter of Josephine de Beauharnais. When Josephine married Napoleon Bonaparte, he took a lively interest in Madame Campan, appointing her lady superintendent of the institution founded by him at Ecouen for the education of daughters of officers of the Legion of Honor. After the Restoration, this school was suppressed, and Madame Campan, again an exile, returned to Mantes, where she died in 1822. In her declining years, her mind reverted to her life at court, and she set herself the devoted task of clearing the memory of its ill-fated queen. She gives her reasons for writing in the following memorandum left with the original work. I have spent half my life either with the daughters of Louis XV or with Marie Antoinette. I knew the character of those princesses. I became privy to some extraordinary facts, the publication of which may be interesting, and the truth of the details will form the merit of my work. 
I am determined to note in this work no other events than such as I witnessed, no other words than such as, withstanding the lapse of time, still in some measure vibrate in my ears. Destiny having formerly placed me near crowned heads, I now amuse my solitude when in retirement with collecting a variety of facts which may prove interesting to my family when I shall be no more. I have put together all that concerned the domestic life of an unfortunate princess, whose reputation is not yet cleared of the stains it received from the attacks of calumny, and who justly merited a different lot in life, a different place in the opinion of mankind after her fall. From the Memoirs of Marie Antoinette by Madame Campan, we begin. I was fifteen years of age when I was appointed reader to Mesdames. I will begin by describing the court at that period. Maria Lachenska, the queen, was just dead. The death of the Dauphin had preceded hers by three years. The Jesuits were suppressed, and piety was to be found at court only in the apartments of Mesdames, the king's four unmarried daughters. Etiquette still existed at court with all the forms it had acquired under Louis Fourteenth. Dignity alone was wanting. As to gaiety, there was none. Versailles was not the place at which to seek for assemblies where French spirit and grace were displayed. The focus of wit and intelligence was Paris. The king thought of nothing but the pleasures of the hunt. It might have been imagined that the courtiers indulged themselves in making epigrams by hearing them say seriously on those days when the king did not hunt, The king does nothing today. Louis XV saw very little of his family. He came every morning by a private staircase into the apartment of his daughter, Madame Adelaide. He often brought and drank their coffee that he had made himself. Madame Adelaide pulled a bell which apprised Madame Victoire of the king's visit. Madame Victoire, on rising to go to her sister's apartment, rang for Madame Sophie, who in her turn rang for Madame Louise. The apartments of Madame were of very large dimensions. Madame Louise occupied the farthest room. This latter lady was deformed and very short. The poor princess used to run with all her might to join the daily meeting, but having a number of rooms to cross, she frequently, in spite of her haste, had only just time to embrace her father before he set out for the chase. Every evening at six, Mesdames interrupted my reading to them to accompany the princes to Louis XV. This visit was called the King's Debote, and was marked by a kind of etiquette. Mesdames put on an enormous hoop, which set out a petticoat ornamented with gold or embroidery. They fastened a long train around their waists, and concealed the undress of the rest of their clothing by a long cloak of black taffeta, which enveloped them up to the chin. The chevalier d'honneur, the ladies-in-waiting, the pages, the equerries, and the ushers bearing large flambeaux accompanied them to the king. In a moment the whole palace, generally so still, was in motion. The king kissed each princess on the forehead, and the visit was so short that the reading which it interrupted was frequently resumed at the end of a quarter of an hour. Mesdames returned to their apartments and untied the strings of their petticoats and trains. They resumed their tapestry, and I my book. During the summer season, the king sometimes came to the residence of Madame before the hour of his debotee. 
One day he found me alone in Madame Victoire's closet and asked me where Koch was. I started, and he repeated his question, but without being at all the more understood. When the king was gone, I asked Madame of whom he spoke. She told me that it was herself, and very coolly explained to me that being the fattest of his daughters, the king had given her the familiar name of Koch, that he called Madame Adelaide Locke, Madame Sophie Greil, and Madame Louise Schiff. The people of the king's household observed that he knew a great number of such words. Possibly he had amused himself with picking them out from dictionaries. If this style of speaking betrayed the habits and tastes of the king, his manner savored nothing of such vulgarity. His walk was easy and noble. He had a dignified carriage of the head, and his aspect, without being severe, was imposing. He combined great politeness with a truly regal demeanor, and gracefully saluted the humblest woman who curiosity led into his path. He was very expert in a number of trifling matters which never occupy attention but when there is a lack of something better to employ it. For instance, he would knock off the top of an eggshell at a single stroke of his fork. He therefore always ate eggs when he dined in public, and the Parisians who came on Sundays to see the king dine returned home less struck with his fine figure than with the dexterity with which he broke his eggs. Repartees of Louis XV, which marked his keenness of wit and the elevation of his sentiments, were quoted with pleasure in the assemblies of Versailles. Mesdames too much neglected the means of pleasing the king, but the cause of that was obvious in the little attention he had paid to them in their youth. In order to console the people under their sufferings and to shut their eyes to the real depredations of the treasury, the ministers occasionally pressed the most extravagant measures of reform in the king's household and even in his personal expenses. Cardinal Fleury, who in truth had the merit of re-establishing his finances, carried this system of economy so far as to obtain from the king the suppression of the household of the four younger princesses. They were brought up as mere boarders in a convent eighty miles distant from the court. Madame Louise often assured me that at twelve years of age she was not mistress of the whole alphabet, and never learned to read fluently until after her return to Versailles. Madame Victoire attributed certain paroxysms of terror, which she was never able to conquer, to the violent alarms she experienced at the Abbey of Fontevraud, whenever she was sent, by way of penance, to pray alone in the vault where the sisters were interred. A gardener belonging to the Abbey died raving mad. His habitation, without the walls, was near a chapel of the Abbey, where Madame were taken to repeat the prayers for those in the agonies of death. Their prayers were more than once interrupted by the shrieks of the dying man. When Mesdames, still very young, returned to court, they enjoyed the friendship of Monseigneur the Dauphin and profited by his advice. They devoted themselves ardently to study and gave up almost the whole of their time to it. They enabled themselves to write French correctly and acquired a good knowledge of history. Italian, English, the higher branches of mathematics, turning and dialing, filled up with succession their leisure moments. Madame Adelaide, in particular, had a most insatiable desire to learn. She was taught to play upon all instruments, from the horn, will it be believed, to the Jew's harp. 
Madame Adelaide was graced for a short time with a charming figure, but never did beauty so quickly vanish. Madame Victoire was handsome and very graceful. Her address, mien, and smile were in perfect accordance with the goodness of her heart. Madame Sophie was remarkably ugly. Never did I behold a person with so unprepossessing an appearance. She walked with the greatest rapidity, and in order to recognize the people who placed themselves along her path without looking at them, she acquired the habit of leering on one side, like a hare. This princess was so exceedingly diffident that a person might be with her daily for years together without hearing her utter a single word. It was asserted, however, that she displayed talent and even amiability in the society of some favorite ladies. She taught herself a great deal, but she studied alone. The presence of a reader would have disconcerted her very much. There were, however, occasions on which the princess, generally so intractable, became all at once affable and condescending, and manifested the most communicative good nature. This would happen during a storm. So great was her alarm on such an occasion that she then approached the most humble and would ask them a thousand obliging questions. A flash of lightning made her squeeze their hands. A peal of thunder would drive her to embrace them. But with the return of the calm, the princess resumed her stiffness, her reserve, and her repellent air, and passed all by without taking the slightest notice of anyone, until a fresh storm restored to her at once her dread and her affability. Mesdames found in a beloved brother whose rare attainments are known to all Frenchmen a guide in everything wanting to their education. In their august mother, Queen Maria Lachinska, they possessed the noblest example of every pious and social virtue. That princess, by her eminent qualities and her modest dignity, veiled the failings of the king. And while she lived, she preserved the court of Louis XV, that decorous and dignified tone which alone secures the respect due to power. The princesses, her daughters, were worthy of her, and if a few degraded beings did aim the shafts of calumny at them, these shafts dropped harmless, warded off by the elevation of their sentiments and the purity of their conduct. If mesdames had not tasked themselves with numerous occupations, they would have been much to be pitied. They loved walking, but could enjoy nothing beyond the public gardens of Versailles. They would have cultivated flowers, but could have no others than those in their windows. The Marquise de Dufour, since the Duchesse de Sivrac, afforded to Madame Victoire agreeable society. The princess spent almost all her evenings with that lady, and ended up by fancying herself domiciled with her. Madame de Narbonne had, in a similar way, taken pains to make her intimate acquaintance pleasant to Madame Adelaide. Madame Louise had for many years lived in great seclusion. I read to her five hours a day. My voice frequently betrayed the exhaustion of my lungs. The princess would then prepare sugared water for me, place it by me, and apologize for making me read so long, on the score of having prescribed a course of reading for herself. One evening, while I was reading, she was informed that Monsieur Bertin, one of the king's ministers, desired to speak with her. She went out abruptly, returned, resumed her silks and embroidery, and made me resume my book. When I retired, she commanded me to be in her room the next morning at eleven o'clock. 
When I got there, the princess was gone out. I learned that she had gone at seven in the morning to the convent of the Carmelites of Saint-Denis, where she was desirous of taking the veil. I went to Madame Victoire. There I heard that the king alone had been acquainted with Madame Louise's project, that he had kept it faithfully secret, and that having long previously opposed her wish, he had only on the preceding evening sent her his consent, that she had gone alone into the convent, where she was expected, and that a few minutes afterward she had made her appearance at the grating to show to the Princess de Gistel, who had accompanied her to the convent gate, and to her equerry, the king's order to leave her in the monastery. Upon receiving the intelligence of her sister's departure, Madame Arelaï gave way to violent paroxysms of rage, and reproached the king bitterly for the secret which he had thought it his duty to preserve. Madame Victoire missed the society of her favorite sister, but she shed tears in silence only. The first time I saw this excellent princess after Madame Louise's departure, I threw myself at her feet, kissed her hand, and asked her, with all the confidence of youth, whether she would quit us as Madame Louise had done. She raised me, embraced me, and said, pointing to the lounge upon which she was extended, Make yourself easy, my dear. I shall never have Louise's courage. I love the conveniences of life too well. This lounge is my destruction. As soon as I obtained permission to do so, I went to Saint-Denis to see my late mistress. She deigned to receive me with her face uncovered in her private parlor. She told me she had just left the wash-house and that it was her turn that day to attend to the linen. I much abused your youthful lungs for two years before the execution of my project, added she. I knew that here I could read nothing but books tending to our salvation, and I wished to review all the historians that had interested me. She informed me that the king's consent for her to go to Saint-Denis had been brought to her while I was reading. She prided herself, and with reason, upon having returned to her room without the slightest mark of agitation, though she said she felt so keenly that she could scarcely regain her chair. She added that the moralists were right when they said that happiness does not dwell in palaces, that she had proved it, and that, if I desired to be happy, she advised me to come and enjoy a retreat in which the liveliest imagination might find full exercise in the contemplation of a better world. I had no palace, no earthly grandeur to sacrifice to God, nothing but the bosom of a united family, and it is precisely there that the moralists whom she cited have placed true happiness. I replied that, in private life, the absence of a beloved and cherished daughter would be too cruelly felt by her family. The princess said no more on the subject. The seclusion of Madame Louise was attributed to various motives— some were unkind enough to suppose it to have been occasioned by her mortification at being, in point of rank, the last of the princesses. I think I penetrated the true cause. Her aspirations were lofty. She loved everything sublime. Often while I was reading, she would interrupt me to exclaim, "'That is beautiful. That is noble.' There was but one brilliant action that she could perform. To quit a palace for a cell— and rich garments for a cheap gown. She achieved it. I saw Madame Louise two or three times more at the grating. 
I was informed of her death by Louis the Sixteenth. My Aunt Louise, said he to me, your old mistress, is just dead at Saint-Denis. I have this moment received intelligence of it. Her piety and resignation were admirable, and yet the delirium of my good aunt recalled to her recollection that she was a princess, for her last words were, To paradise! Haste! Haste! Full speed! No doubt she thought she was again giving orders to her equerry. Madame Victoire, good, sweet-tempered, and affable, lived with the most amiable simplicity in a society wherein she was much caressed. She was adored by her household. Without quitting Versailles, without sacrificing her easy chair, she fulfilled the duties of religion with punctuality, gave to the poor all she possessed, and strictly observed Lent and the fasts. Madame Victoire was not indifferent to good living, but she had the most religious scruples regarding dishes of which it was allowed to partake at penitential times. The abstinence which so much occupied the attention of Madame Victoire was so disagreeable to her that she listened with impatience for the midnight hour of Holy Saturday, and then she was immediately supplied with a good dish of fowl and rice and sundry other succulent dishes. She confessed with such amiable candor her taste for good cheer and the comforts of life that it would have been necessary to be as severe in principle as insensible to the excellent qualities of the princess to consider it a crime in her. Madame Adelaide had more mind than Madame Victoire, but she was altogether deficient in that kindness which alone creates affection for the great. Abrupt manners, a harsh voice, and a short way of speaking, rendering her more than imposing. She carried the idea of the prerogative of rank to a high pitch. One of her chaplains was unlucky enough to say Dominus Vobiscum with rather too easy an air. The princess rated him soundly for it after Mass, and told him to remember that he was not a bishop, and not again to think of officiating in the style of a prelate. Madame lived quite separate from the king. Since the death of Madame de Pompadour, he had lived alone. The king was connected only with women of so low a class that they could not be made use of for any delicate intrigue. Moreover, the Parco serfs was a seraglio, the beauties of which were often replaced. It was desirable to give the king a mistress who could form a circle, and in whose drawing-room the long-standing attachment of the king for the Duke of Choiseul might be overcome. It is true that Madame du Barry was selected from a class sufficiently low. Her origin, her education, her habits, and everything about her bore a character of vulgarity and shamelessness. But by marrying her to a man whose pedigree dated from 1400, it was thought scandal would be avoided. Such a mistress was judiciously selected for the diversion of the latter years of a man weary of grandeur, fatigued with pleasure, and cloyed with voluptuousness. Neither the wit, the talents, the graces of the Marquise de Pompadour, her beauty, nor even her love for the king would have had any further influence over that worn-out being. He wanted a Roxolana of familiar gaiety, without any respect for the dignity of the sovereign. Madame du Barry one day so far forgot propriety as to desire to be present at a council of state. The king was weak enough to consent to it. There she remained ridiculously perched upon the arm of his chair, playing all sorts of childish monkey tricks calculated to please an old sultan.
Another time she snatched a packet of sealed letters from the king's hand. Among them she had observed one from the Comte de Broglie. She told the king that she knew the rascal Broglie spoke ill of her to him, and that for once at least she would make sure he should read nothing respecting her. The king wanted to get the packet again. She resisted, and made him run two or three times around the table, which was in the middle of the council chamber, and then, on passing the fireplace, she threw the letters into the grate where they were consumed. The king became furious. He seized his audacious mistress by the arm and put her out of the door without speaking to her. Madame du Berry thought herself utterly disgraced. She returned home and remained two hours, alone, abandoned to the utmost distress. The king went to her, she threw herself at his feet, in tears, and he pardoned her. The men of ambition who were laboring to overthrow the Duc de Choiseul strengthened themselves by their concentration at the house of the favorite, and succeeded in their project. The bigots who never forgave that minister the suppression of the Jesuits, and who had always been hostile to a treaty of alliance with Austria, influenced the minds of Mesdames. Such was the state of the public mind when the young Archduchess Marie Antoinette arrived at the court of Versailles, just at the moment when the party which brought her there was about to be overthrown. Madame Adelaide openly avowed her dislike to a princess of the House of Austria, and when Monsieur Campan, my father-in-law, went to receive his orders at the moment of setting off with the household of the Dauphiness to go and receive the Archduchess upon the frontiers, she said she disapproved of the marriage of her nephew with an archduchess, and that, if she had the direction of the matter, she would not send for an Austrian. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.